Industry Pods and Evergreen Podcast Network are pleased to present the following podcast. What an amazing set of conversations we've heard so far. We now turn our focus to digital asset custodianship with Decrypt's Jen Benson and his panel of experts. Following that will be a keynote presentation from Acro founder and CEO, Motion Masood. Hi, I'm joined here by five wonderful panelists. We've got Glenn Barber, who's head of sales and business development for the Americas at Copper, which is a global asset, uh, global digital asset custody firm. We've got Douglas Borthwick, chief business officer at INX Limited, and that has crypto and securities trading platforms for institutions. We have Yael Tamar. She's co-founder and CEO of SolidBlock, an asset tokenization platform for real estate. Uh, we also have Oleg Kurchenko, founder of cryptocurrency exchange Binary X or Binarix, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And last but not least, we have Brian Korn. He's a partner with Manat, Phelps and Phillips, where he specializes in securities laws and broker dealer compliance. Welcome, everyone, to the LA Blockchain Summit. Thank you. Hey, Jeff. So Thank the title you. of this panel is Digital Asset custodianship. And so I thought that we could start by breaking that down. And there's five of us, but let's try to have a lively conversation instead of kind of going from question to question. So if you feel the need to jump in, just jump in. Um, but let's start by breaking down what we mean by custodianship. So we're hearing a lot about institutional investors getting into crypto in record numbers. But who exactly are we talking about? Who are custody firms holding cryptocurrency for? Is this big companies, hedge funds, venture capitalists, a little bit of all of the above? And what are the reasons why these institutional investors are getting into crypto? Olog, could you start us off on that? Yeah, of course. Hi. Yeah. Uh, first of all, thank you for invitation. And uh, I'm really appreciate uh, and, and and really glad to be here so um answering on your question the reasons of uh, institutional investors are interested in crypto assets uh, and right now the amount of those investors are become bigger it's uh, uh, there is like few main reasons according to our survey what we uh, have in binrex so and the first main point this is the inflation and money printing by u.s government because of uh, about 20 from 20 up to 22 percent uh, of money was printed in 2020 year it's more than 10 it, it's more than nine billion dollars and uh, all of them like all of uh, those hedge funds and uh, vc funds are scary about the inflation so this is the reason why they are investing in bitcoins. Of course, we need to say there is a, like a good potential, a capital to increase the long term and growing the confidence in crypto as an asset class. And of course, uh, that helps to improve the regu regulatory environment uh, on the cryptocurrency market. And this is the reason why they start asking, uh, they start looking additional additional markets where where they want to invest uh, in so there is the main reasons why they invest in money in crypto so uh, glenn you're uh head of sales and business development for the americas 
Copper is based in the UK, but it's a global firm. Mm -hmm. Is what Oleg's saying, does that, is this primarily like a US driven phenomenon in terms of institutional uh, investment and, and really the rise of custodian firms? No, not at all. It's a global phenomenon, just like blockchain and crypto is, right? Um, you know, we see all kinds of institutional engagement right now. And, and it's obviously something that we've all waited two to three years to really uh, come in. But, you know, everything prior to over the last 12, 18 months was dominated by crypto native hedge funds, uh, arbitrageurs and, and other investment and, and um, trading houses that really saw the potential for the asset class earlier than most. You know, now you're seeing this migration from traditional financial firms and you're talking about hedge funds. You know, you're seeing news of pension funds making the first asset uh, investments, not only into the VC community, but also directly into Bitcoin. Uh, you know, you're seeing endowments take a hard look at it and you're seeing asset managers realizing that they have a new product offering that they could potentially give to their investors. So, you know, and that's not just limited to the United States. You have a very friendly regime in Switzerland. There was just a conference over the last couple of days. Uh, Crypto Valley is very well known for incubation, and that includes large banking institutions, private wealth managers and the like. And then you have a, a huge amount of Asian firms, and that includes protocols, because obviously these uh, treasury amounts are increasing into the tens, if not more billions of dollars. So all of this combined is really, really creating the wave of institutional engagement that we've been looking for over the last couple of years. And it's just going to get even bigger. Well, and then, sorry, Yala, you want to jump in there? Yeah, I mean, so the original question you asked about the institutional, uh, institutions and custody, there's two sides to this picture, um, on the side of the user and on the side of the provider, right? So a lot of institutions have gotten into crypto for the reasons that the previous speakers have talked about. But then yet some other institutions that have all the licenses necessary realize that there is a great opportunity to start providing custody of digital assets on top of the custody of traditional assets. But, you know, just very simply, what is custody? Right? What do we mean by somebody providing custody of digital assets? Well, number one, the, the most basic service is storing the keys to the wallet on behalf of the user. Right. So the biggest fear in the crypto world because the asset is digital, is once you use the keys, you are you lost the asset, right? So in, in some cases, in the some centralized you know, uh, systems, you can restore the ownership. And, um, uh, you know, um, but in, in most cases, you just, you lost the asset. So that's a very important part that individuals are so used to institutions holding their assets on their behalf that, you know, they're ready to trust, you know, a bank um, or a hedge fund or, you know, an investment bank, you know, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, especially if they already have custody of their other assets, you know, stocks, bonds, other types of private investments. So it's easier for them to just put their crypto or other crypto assets in, in, in those wallets, right, provided by those institutions. So that's why this industry has grown so big that almost every institution out there is using either their in-house, some are developing their in-house custody solutions, and some are using these custody tech providers. So that's, that's what I wanted to know. Yeah, and I, I definitely want to circle back to the security issue, but something else that you touched on was, was pretty interesting there in terms of that's just the tip. That's the most basic service. But right now, we're getting beyond just firms wanting exposure to Bitcoin or maybe a bit of ETH. We're talking about firms potentially getting into DeFi. And so I'm wondering, 
who's getting into decentralized finance? What to what extent um, is this about just holding maybe a little bit of comp or are institutional investors demanding to take part in staking and, and governance in, in other areas? I mean, Douglas, can you can you ta take that? Well, I can talk a little bit about that, but you know, why are people getting into DeFi? Because that's where the money is. And let's face it, I think we all know market makers that are making 30% a month just you know, by sitting there and doing, let's say, an arbitrage between Bitcoin and maybe wrapped Bitcoin. You know, there, there's, there's so many opportunities there right now, and there's a lot of money. Now, we all talk about custody here, but you know, the little guy in the street, the, 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 I guess the younger generation doesn't really trust the custodian. And I think they prefer to just hold it on their MetaMask wallet. And so they'd actually prefer self-custody. And that's something actually that, you know, us as an exchange, as a, as a regulated, you know, with FINRA and the SEC for our securities exchange, we do self-custody where we allow someone to custody their, their securities on a MetaMask wallet. But we've also solved that problem that you have with crypto where you can lose your crypto. You know, it could be stolen or, you know, it could disappear. You lose your keys by using something called the ERC-1404 standard, which allows us to revoke tokens from a lost wallet and reissue them in a new wallet, because you can't lose your 401k in a boating accident. <laughs> and there's a lot of securities that we have now in our pipeline coming down that are going to be ERC-1404 standard. And so you, you, you don't care about the custody so much because now you know you can't lose it. And they can't be stolen because the only way you can own the security or move it from one wallet to another is if the wallets are whitelisted. So only a monkey is going to steal a security token from one person and put it in their wallet when I have that person's phone number, address, email, passport, and driver's license because we've done KYC and AML on the whitelisted wallets. So custody that we talk about today is very much a legacy type thing that, yeah, we're used to that for stocks and bonds. But on Reddit, the GameStop guys, they don't want to have their stocks custody. They want to hold it themselves because they don't want rehypothecation. They don't want to buy GameStop and then have a hedge fund, borrow it, and short it. Right. And with security tokens, you know, self-custody, you sort of fill that void and you take care of what the GameStop folks were, were talking about on Reddit. I think that there's a, a real separation between the crypto investors and the DeFi investors. Uh, a lot of people who are reluctant to you know, even a couple of years ago, wouldn't have touched any of this because, you know, there's a 15% chance that it's not real or worthless. I think that world has kind of gone away. And I think you're now seeing institutional buy-in. You saw major corporations and major investment houses all but endorse the model. Tesla moved a bunch of cash into Bitcoin. Um, and, and, and Schwab and Chase and a few others, that, that starts to add up after a while. And you know, the what we call it, the, the mainstream stock market uh, has been more volatile than the crypto market and has been outperformed by nearly every single token that you could buy on Coinbase. You could throw a dart at your phone and you go to bed at night and you wake up and something's up 5%. Uh, that's a major move for a Wall Street stock. Mm -hmm. And so this community, the institutional investors, but even before the institutions, what we're seeing is the smaller investors, family offices, people who don't have as strict of an investment mandate from their LPs, from their investors, uh, are starting to move more and more of their allocations into crypto and into tokens, simply because of the returns they're getting. And now they're comfortable with 
the form factor of some of these custodial wallets where they can say, okay, I, I see that I have cash in here. It has a link to my other accounts. It's not quite DTC transparent, so I can't put it all on the same screen, but uh, it's, it's not a series of 18 hash numbers uh, where it's on some website where I may forget the, the, the website. You know, we don't live in a world where if I lose my PIN number, I've lost all my money. Uh, we live in a centralized world. Um, mistakes are correctable. And what was off-putting about this industry for a long time was kind of how ruthless it was and all of the horror stories. You know, the guy lost his laptop in India with everyone's, with everyone's tokens. Uh, the people who, um, um, who, who lost a ton of money because they were hacked because they used the wrong wallet. Uh, I, I think that as capital moves into the custodial space and into the uh, infrastructure of this industry, you're going to have a lot more of the not early adapters, but the middle of the road adapters, people my age uh, are, are, are moving into this stuff big time. Uh, and it's not just for people who are, you know, in their basement in college or, or doing other things. Can I mention something real quick, Jeff? Of course. Um, all right. So I think over 50% of all DeFi transactions last year were done by so-called institutions. And the way they, they, the way they calculate that is by taking large transactions, 10 million and higher. Now, what's really cool about this is that you see a lot of acquisitions by DeFi companies because they make so much money. They buy their own custodians. So Celsius just bought GK8, which happens to be our custodian at SolidBlock. And, um, you know, why they bought them, you know, one of the reasons is I think GK8 announced that they work with a few institutions, so they're trustworthy, right? So Gemini bought another company, I think they're called ShardX. So every, like, literally in the last quarter, a bunch of DeFi companies bought um, uh, bought custodians. Why? Because they're getting a lot of institutional investors onboarded and whatever wallet solution that they had is not sufficient for institutional investors because they want more security and, um, you know, they want more institutional features. Yeah. I'm, uh, sorry, I'll, I'll just jump in. Last Go for it, Glenn. You know, I think that, yeah, it, it made a really good point. You know, uh, we, we are kind of the front lines as the custodians in terms of seeing the businesses that people are interested in. And I will tell you that on average, I would think that 30 to 40% of our institutional conversations around people looking to get excess, excess return in crypto is centered around DeFi and how to access it, right? I mean, for example, you know, Copper just happens to have what we call Copper Connect, which is an institutional grade version of MetaMask. And that is an extremely popular product. So I think the people that have at least a mild comfort with exposure or investment into digital assets, one of the major topics is definitely mm -hmm. DeFi. Right. And, and Brian, as as companies wade into these new markets, uh, you know, you're the practicing lawyer of the bunch. So what are the minimum sort of legal and regulatory safeguards that are present and required of custodians? What makes people feel safe putting their assets with with someone else? You know, it's it's actually a really interesting question because the custodial world around crypto um, is, is not by and large as regulated as one might think. Uh, there's a custodial regulatory regime around securities transactions. And if you're holding tokens, which might be securities, you have to ask yourself the question, do I need to be a broker dealer? Am I offering secondary trading on my platform? Is this something where I have to have an alternative trading system designation? 
Um, do I have to have a qualified custodian license, which is a, an enhanced broker dealer, which requires more capital? Uh, do I need to be a qualified clearing firm? Um, you know, clearing is really something that's more for the centralized world. Uh, most of the DEXs and the other exchanges and, and other houses that hold this uh, this asset class are, are in the decentralized space. Uh, we're not looking to clear uh, through a central node. We're looking at a multiple to multiple exchange. And, you know, kind of to the chagrin of a lot of the regulators, most of that's not regulated. Now, what is regulated is your ability to take cash from somebody, uh, your ability to swipe and an ACH someone's account, your ability to swipe someone's credit card, uh, your prohibition on doing business with people who are on uh, prohibited terrorist watch lists and other SDN lists from the Treasury Department and from the equivalent of that list in virtually every country that uh, will have crypto investors. And so FATF has really kind of moved the ball here in terms of uh, trying to set up a global exchange where people are going to subscribe to a similar set of rules with respect to KYC and AML. Uh, but KYC AML is really your, uh, your, your, your biggest issue in terms of, of you know, regulatory compliance. Uh, the easiest thing to get busted on, the easiest thing uh, to get picked up, and really the biggest concern of most regulators, not just with the FBI and the SEC, but Interpol and other uh, agencies around the world, is the prevention of fraud and the prevention of, uh, of, of, of hackers and people using uh, the blockchain as a way of, um, of, of furthering crimes and ransomware attacks and, and that sort of thing. So to the extent that you can screen your your platform to uh, to the extent possible, uh, have a robust uh, KYC AML platform, uh, you're really going to go a long way towards uh, towards being in compliance. And then, as we heard from the SEC earlier today, here um, there really is no plan, and and they can't even have lunch together without. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I kind of knew that rule, but I was it was interesting to hear them say it without having a public meeting. Um, that's a recipe for nothing getting done. And, uh, you know, the security status of the token. So if you're on a, a site and some of the stuff is securities and some isn't the SEC coming in and saying, this is a security, this isn't, that's really an application of the old Howie case, which is a Supreme court case, uh, an act of Congress. So Congressman Emmer is really in the driver's seat in terms of changing the rules and providing regulatory clarity there, but not the SEC. So I know that's kind of a long-winded answer, but there's very little in the way of real structure around crypto custodianships in terms of what you really have to do. So, I mean, in the absence of that, as the sort of regulatory frameworks are still being formed, as people are kind of figuring out what's going on, it seems like that's going to be left mostly to the industry players to kind of set standards and, and infrastructure I mean, Oleg, can you speak to a little bit of the kind of infrastructure that's necessary for firms to set up to protect and serve the investors? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, actually, the few weeks ago, I was on Money 2020 on the panel discussion in Amsterdam, and we talk about uh, infrastructure and what kind of uh, rules uh, the major crypto players in that in this area must define and uh, the first of all they need to uh, make the standards for the providing services and protection of their client 
clients' funds. When we're talking about uh, crypto custody, yeah, uh, we don't need to. Uh, we need to remember that this, uh, there is no any clean house for uh, all companies who has their own custodies uh, for. Uh, for accessing to liquidity very quickly and uh, this is not a um, solid question at that moment but when we're talking about uh, that kind of uh, things when we're talking about infrastructure i think there is a need to create uh, first of all the uh, asset hub uh, liquidity hub where uh, where one central uh, and one central liquidity hub uh, have access to the major exchanges uh, and give the possibility to the crypto custodies uh, or the uh, like custodies of uh, some companies to access to that hub and uh, the, uh, they have an access to liquidity on the market on the crypto market and also need to remember about the regulations because uh, Recently, CAS approved the first Bitcoin ETF on October 19th, uh, and uh, that ETF traded on CME. Uh, and why it was approved? The, for CAS, the fund is quite understandable because uh, futures trading has opening and closing times just like uh, other financial markets. And uh, what what do we need uh, more about regulations? Despite large numbers of uh, cryptocurrency investors and blockchain companies in the United States, the country hasn't yet developed a clear regulatory framework for the asset class. So CAS typically view cryptocurrency as a security, uh, while the Commodity Futures Trading Commission uh, calls Bitcoin a commodity and the treasury calls it a currency so the first of all they need to uh, be sure and uh, all of authorities should agree about how they regulate the crypto and only after that we can uh, start talking about the cryptocurrency infrastructure development uh, so, so uh, we've mostly been talking about uh, mm -hmm. cryptocurrency um, and uh, there's a tendency to use cryptocurrency and digital assets sort of interchangeably, but mm -hmm. they're kind of different. And Yael and, and Douglas, I wanted to bring you guys in here because uh, so Yael, you're dealing with tokenization of real world assets, actual real estate. Um, and so I'm curious about the fundamental difference between, you know, custody of, uh, of crypto assets, custody of security tokens and custody of like real world assets. And then Douglas, after that, I'd like to talk a little bit about, about where you see the market going in terms of NFT custody, um, because that's like the next hotspot. Uh, also, I have a question uh, about oh, sure. uh, the digital assets, but after Douglas uh, will talk, I will ask that question because he's related with that market. <laughs> okay. Yeah, actually, what I was going to say is something like segue into what Douglas will say. And <laughs> basically, yeah, okay. the difference between the, you know, crypto assets that are not securities, right? Non-security tokens, whatever they may be, either cryptocurrencies or they could be uh, ERC-20 tokens or other types of um, tokens that are used in, in different systems. So all of those non-security tokens in terms of custody, 
Um, there are uh, diff, you know, different licensing requirements generally dealing with securities, broker dealer as, you know, uh, we've been meant actually, sorry, I have to backtrack. Um, uh, yeah, so many, many security concerns, right? And if you are storing uh, uh, security as in cyber security, if you are storing, if you are custodying um, digital securities by the name of security, which is an instrument, a financial instrument, then there is different set of licensing involved and also uh, different requirements, right? So, uh, uh, so I think that Douglas probably can talk more about those requirements, but basically that's, that's the main difference. And sorry, just one more thing about a difference between uh, uh, securities and non-securities is that, um, you know, when we're dealing with securities, it's usually in representing real world assets. Um, you know, it could be uh, somebody's real estate, you know, and NFTs even representing your apartment and so on and so forth. So uh, we have to create a new set of rules because, you know, one must not lose their real estate, right, together with their keys. <laughs> so uh, so there is definitely a difference there in terms of uh, user experience, you know, especially inexperienced users must not lose the real world assets. So there's different tech requirements and user experience requirements between the two. Yeah. And I'll be leaving it to Douglas to explain what you need, what one needs to become uh, or to custody digital security. Thank you, Yale. Um, first of all, I'd say that people that say that there's uncertainty in the regulation mm -hmm. are the ones that are in trouble with the regulators. <laughs> and I'll say this because there's plenty of exchanges out there that trade crypto that, as Gensler said, are listing hundreds of tokens that they see as securities. And I think we would all see them as securities, guys that had ICOs, raised money, and just went at it. And now they say, oh, you know, we didn't know. In 2018, when we put our prospectus into the SEC for the first time, and we did the first ever IPO of a full registered security on the blockchain, we listed every cryptocurrency except for XRP, because at the time we said XRP is a security. This wasn't a secret. We weren't the only ones thinking this. But you know what? Some exchanges were making 20% of their profits by having people trade XRP. They did pretty good on it. So they said, you know what? We'll just put the blinders on. But if you list Nike, a security on your platform, and you're not a registered broker dealer or ATS for digital assets, guess what? That's illegal. And, you know, if you looked at Coinbase's uh, risk, risk factors in their IPO, they said, we may be in a little bit of trouble because we listed XRP and it may be some security and maybe others. So I'd say that first of all. I know what a security is and what isn't. Guess what? If it's registered with the SEC as a, as a full registered security like INEX, then that's a security. If it's an exempt security, a Reg D, Reg S, Reg A, guess what? That's a security. If it's not, well, unless someone from the NYDFS tells me that it's not a security and that it's just a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin or Ethereum, I'm probably not going to list it. Now, there's protocol tokens, too. I'll probably list some of them because I can see that they are actually not securities. But there isn't really that much of a gray area. I think we can all point to a number of different coins that trade on different platforms and say these are securities. Now, having said that, there is a breakdown. I've got a crypto trading platform. For that, I need MT licenses in every single state all across the United States. And I have to get licenses in different countries as well. And then, but the, the custody of that is pretty simple. You don't need a qualified custodian to, to have Bitcoin and, and do custody of Bitcoin, which is why you have all these banks coming out. They're saying, hey, we'll custody Bitcoin. Even Fidelity will custody Bitcoin. But what they're not saying right now is we'll custody digital securities. That's because there's not really a qualified custodian out there. 
And so we came out there, we did the, the first ever IPO in the blockchain, full prospectus, INX Limited, did our IPO at 90 cents. I think today's at $2.60. That would be the, the second best performing IPO in 2021. But then we went around to custodians. We went around to institutions who said, would, would you like to buy our security in our IPO? And they said, look, we'd love to, but it's not packaged in the right way. It's not packaged in the right way because we can't hold digital securities. We can hold currencies, commodities, fixed income, and equities. But we can't hold digital securities because it's not on any of our prospectuses. And there's no qualified custodian that could actually hold it for us. I said, well, that's not so good. So then we went out and we talked to folks like MetaMask, who just came out with like MetaMask Institutional. It sounds very much like the, 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 uh, the, the copper um, solution as well, where institutions are finding ways where they can custody things themselves because there are no qualified custodians out there for these types of digital assets. Now, but, the, but people only worry about the custody issue if they're worried about losing their keys, for example, or, or something that they're always told you need a custodian. But if you actually package the security in such a way that it can't get lost or stolen, then the whole, the whole question of custody becomes sort of like null and void. I believe in the next two years on my phone, I'll have a MetaMask wall or something very similar that's going to hold my NFTs of my driver's license, my COVID vaccination, my passport, and they'll be sitting there. I'll have my cryptocurrency on there as well, digital currencies in the dollar and GN or in Bitcoin, Ethereum, whatever, all on my phone. And I'll probably also have my securities in digital format on my phone and I'll actually do the custody myself. And I'll, and I'll know who stole it because I'll be able to go on Etherscan and see, oh look, it was this wallet here. Let me call up the issuer and they'll tell me who stole it. And law enforcement's gonna go there, knock on the guy's door and, and bang him on the head. And I think that that's something that we spent 950 days with the SEC really going over this and that we had to make sure that if there was no custodian, how can you guarantee that someone can't lose, as Yael says, your real estate in a boating accident? Well, you put it on an ERC-1404 token and it's not going to happen. <clears throat> and so how you package something could be in such a way where the custody becomes less of an issue. And custodian... If you talk to anyone, you know, the, by the way, the average age of people that bought an RIPO was 42 years old. And so it's not just young guys are getting into digital securities. It's sort of like you know, it's a broad spectrum of the, of the, of the U.S. And, 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 and internationally. But I would say this, that if you can package something in such a way that the younger folk these days that are trading Bitcoin, Ethereum, all the other stuff, they've got no idea who Fidelity is or Morgan Stanley or E-Trade. Because they're buying on selling all this stuff and they're, they're essentially holding it on their, on their cell phone. So to them, this is custody. And the guys that are going to be getting all of this baby boomer wealth, the baby boomers, they want custody of fidelity. But their kids and their grandkids couldn't care less about fidelity and custody. All right, I want to so I want to bring Glenn in on this one, and because Glenn, are you are you about are you about to be out of a job, or is what you do as a custody firm is it going to have to evolve and change to meet the needs of new consumers? Look, I, you know, Douglas is absolutely right, but he's approaching it from his market, and that's totally understandable, right? It's a very different ball game when you manage uh, institutional money on behalf of other clients. You know, when you're managing other people's money. You don't have that choice, at least not as defined by traditional financial regulations or best practices, even in digital assets or crypto. Right. Look, if I'm an individual investor and I buy something on Robinhood or Voyager or anything like that, 
yeah, I'm pretty happy with a non-custodial arrangement because it's my money and I can choose what to do with it. I can still download it, you know, my assets onto a a ledger or, uh, you know, a a treasure or or any hardware device I want to. That's perfectly within my choice. Institutional investors uh, and those especially managing other people's money don't have that choice. Right. So what they need is something to say, look, I'm going to date myself and, and it may not apply to all the audience, but they want to protect themselves against fraud, against hack, against someone pulling a birdie made off and making off with their stuff. And, you know, if that's the case, there's always going to be a place for custody in the institutional market. Um, will it evolve over time? Absolutely. Will it change the dynamics? For sure. But right now, the biggest thing that institutions worry about is tail risk of hack, theft, and fraud. And the custodians out there with the best technology and the best architecture are best placed to safe keep those assets in the best way possible. Well, can they, can they do all that while still kind of, you know, having maintaining access to their keys? And what are the, what are the trade-offs to that? Yeah, of course they can do that, right? I mean, you know, Co- Copper, for example, has a unique process where we actually avoid single points of failure whether at the custody level or at the client level. You know, we use MPC technology to shard keys, but we require that three different entities have possession of each of the three pieces or the shards of the key, right? So what does that mean? That means if copper were to get hacked, it's not a great outcome, but the hacker only gets one shard and does not have control of those digital assets because you need at least two to sign and verify a transaction. Same thing for a client. I mean, wouldn't it be great to be able to go to your investor base or your client base and go, hey, guess what? If someone hacks into me and I've gotten I'm a big asset manager and I've got this huge pool of assets that are you know, obviously targets for hacking. But if they break through my firewall and my security protocols, they still don't get your assets. Right. That's a pretty powerful message. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, you're talking to a guy that went through the Lehman bankruptcy. And what we are at Copper are trying to do is basically even evolve custody itself to mean more about how can we best safe keep assets on behalf of institutional customers in a way that might even be better than is uh, that's deployed by traditional finance. And so we're pretty excited about that. And yes, I agree that the market will evolve. It will not stay the same because that's just the way that crypto and digital assets go. And as the new global economy evolves, we will evolve with it. I want to you know, kind of clarify. Can, oh, sorry. You, you can ahead. build a really safe hen house but if you make a chicken that can't be stolen, right. who cares about the safe hen house? Look, you I know what? That's not for me to decide. That's for the market to decide. And the That's market, right. is, you know, but, but, but the I market has decided true. that there are multiple ways to safe keep assets. And there's also, as you pointed out on the regulatory side, there are very required ways to safe oh, keep assets. Sure. Until that changes, sure. we're uh, we're in pretty good shape, I think. I want to kind of clarify something that Glenn said and maybe add to it that in terms of MPC, for example, multi-party computation, where you're storing, um, not storing the keys anywhere. Technically, they're kind of pieces of keys in different places and then they're connected into one. Um, so um, and other solutions that are similar, they found that the combination of hot of cold storage, um, you know, cold wallets and hardware wallets is works best for security and for hot wallets for uh, you know even though multi-sig solutions exist a lot of times they're not scalable or usable um, by individual uh, you know uh, individual investors so um, you know if if you don't use custody um, you know and you have 
uh, your own money, like Glenn said, then that that's something that could could be usable and so on and so forth. But if you're managing other people's money, definitely, um, you know, custody offers um, a lot more in terms of security. But from what Douglas said about having an asset that can be stolen, I think that there could be some technological innovations that embed security actually in the asset itself. So I, I think that that's something that will be developing within the next, um, you know, uh, two, three years, probably rather rapidly is to make an asset that cannot be stolen. Why can't we put MPC inside the token? You know, so so there are different things that I think could be done and we're going to see in the market. So, Brian, uh, when, when folks are coming in and you're, you're setting them up, you're putting investors into crypto assets, how does that conversation start? Uh, and what are they telling you that they want? And how does that conversation then end? How does it evolve? So it depends. Um, first of all, Doug, it sounds like your lawyers uh, uh, made a killing. So uh, I'm sorry that wasn't us. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it, it, it depends on uh, what the end goal is, right? Uh, usually there's a friction point between safety and functionality. Uh, clients usually come to us and they say, we have a new token. Uh, we're, we're minting it now. Uh, we want to sell it to as many people as possible. We don't want restrictions and we want to list it on Uniswap and SushiSwap. We want it to, uh, people to be able to earn yield and borrow against it and, and, and provide liquidity. The, the world today is, is different than it was two or three years ago because of all the enforcement cases. Everyone's on notice that uh, if you take the view that something's not a security, you better be really sure and you better have a lot of backup uh, and, and be willing to fight uh, not just the SEC, but the CFTC and various states uh, who have unlimited budget and unlimited time to, uh, to go to war. And so most of the time what happens is there's a bifurcated model where an offshore entity will be developed somewhere. Uh, you know, currently it's BBI, but it was Cayman before. It's been other places, uh, Mauritius. Uh, and there'll be an offering of tokens to non-U.S. persons uh, with the, uh, which is in compliance with, with something called Reg S, the offshore offering exemption. Uh, and eventually the tokens could list or trade on an exchange uh, with, um, with the applicable time periods expiring. Uh, when we talk to investors, uh, I think the biggest issue is, uh, is, is do they want a custodial solution or do they want one that's, uh, that's not? And how comfortable are they with the technology and with the ability to, uh, to, to track uh, value, to trade in and out? Uh, what's going to give them the best liquidity. And most of the time, just like what Glenn was, was explaining, uh, they're not really in charge of, of, of what they can and can't do with the funds and the funds they're managing. If they're institutional investors, they're going to have specific trade mandates and uh, they're not going to be able to buy certain things. They're not going to be able to put the money into, into, certain, um, into certain wallets or certain accounts where there isn't enough backup or asset support. So... Uh, you know, it's really an interesting question. It's kind of, you know, we have a one size fits one policy because everybody comes in with a different idea, different question, different set of challenges uh, and different rules. Um, a lot of people do want to still do the blowout ICOs and, you know, put us put us on that list of 100 uh, 
where we're in a gray area. There's a great use case because we're using it in this game we're building, but uh, you know, most of the people buying this token are not gamers or not going to play the game. Uh, that's that's a difficult set of facts. All right, so we're we're coming to the end here, and it looks as though we need to start wrapping things up. So uh, I was hoping to just do a quick uh, a quick uh, rapid fire uh, and do maybe thirty seconds each, uh, explaining maybe one of the biggest misconceptions, or if you can't think of a misconception, a challenge uh, for digital asset custodianship. Uh, Glenn, do you mind starting us off? Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, I think I'll echo some of the things that Doug and, and Brian mentioned, right? My biggest fear in the regulatory environment for custody is sort of what I see as a brewing war between the states and the federal government, right? Where you have jurisdictions that are well known, such as Wyoming and New York, uh, coming out with their own regulatory environment in terms of banking licenses, trust licenses, bit licenses, followed by, you know, states like Texas and Nebraska, and, you know, you still have the federal government sort of dragging their feet and deciding what or if anything they're going to do, uh, you know, is it going to go SEC? Is it going to go to CFTC? Are they going to play nice in the sandbox? Should we actually create a, a digital assets commission of some sort? And so, I, you know, I wonder on a daily basis how far the states will go. And is there a point of no return that's really just going to be pretty poor outcome for the U.S. compared to its global competitors? Brian? I think that um, there are a couple of things that are misunderstood. The, the DeFi world, which you alluded to before, where people are putting real world assets into NFTs and sending those into trusts or foundations, um, it's a, uh, uh, it, it is a world that uh, a lot of people have faith in because the last 15 deals worked. But I do think it does need structure. Um, when people are lending crypto out as a liquidity provider, uh, that's not the same type of recourse that you have when you're actually lending somebody money in the real world. Uh, somebody asked me if they could bring a lawsuit for, to sue for breach of a smart contract. Um, there is no such court, right? This is unsecured finance. And the only reason it works is because it worked last time. And there's coercion of the structure of the system um, that, uh, you know, people don't want to get blacklisted or, or, or anything like that. But I think that, um, you know, we're, we're the, the technology and the, and the innovation is ahead of, uh, not only the regulation, but a lot of the safeguards. Um, we haven't heard the last of DEX regulation and whether these are securities or not from the broker dealer FINRA perspective. We haven't heard whether, uh, a, a, a company that lends out tokens, uh, needs a lending license. Um, you know, these are things that I worry about and, uh, you know, questions that we deal with a lot. Yeah. Um, so two things, number one, something we already mentioned, the trade-off between usability and security. On the one hand, you don't want to burden, um, your users with, uh, cold storage and wallets and, you know, things like that. On the other hand, you know, you want to give them the best user experience possible. And I think that's just a general cybersecurity dilemma. But another issue that we haven't talked about is actually the liability. You know, um, I'll give an example. A while ago, Fireblocks was um, sued by uh, some sort of a gaming or a staking firm uh, that lost $75 million. 
um, in a hacking accident. So who's to blame, right? So they blame Firebox as their provider. But in reality, um, I think that that court case was tossed out by the judge because uh, they've done something that their custodian didn't recommend. And on their end, on the front end, that's where they actually lost the, that's where they actually lost the assets. Right. So um, I think that there's still a lot of jerry rigging in terms of insurance, third party liability and things like that in this industry, especially where integrations occur. So that's that I think is going to become even bigger challenge because there's so many different applications. Now you have lending, borrowing, you have staking, you have, um, you know, all kinds of fun, new financial instruments, derivatives, uh, you know, ETFs, indices, stuff like that. So that's something we have to watch out for. And then real quickly, Oleg and then Douglas. Yeah, hi. Uh, the, the first of all, like uh, my concern that is like regulator can, uh, I'll explain a little bit more about ourselves, what we are doing right now. We're in the middle of the process to sell the equity of uh, some ed tech company in our country. So uh, we're working with the regulator right now and uh, I'm concerned about uh, how they, offer to work with the equity tokens. Uh, so we would like to sell the equity tokens and allow to people uh, transfer the tokens more easily between each other to um, create uh, more uh, like more fuel for economy. So we would like to uh, make uh, the transactions faster, but uh, the re regulators say to us that we need to, to work uh, with those kind of tokens, like with the securities. And I am really concerned about if they uh, stop that process uh, in the middle when uh, they don't allow to companies uh, to give give possibility to send uh, the tokens easily between their clients and uh, they say to us that we need to issue that token on private blockchain but there is no trustability to that token if uh, we issue it uh, on the private blockchain so this is also my question if we will have time and maybe somebody uh, have uh, uh, have an answer uh, on that question if the regulator some uh, if there is any possibility that regulator gives the possibility to issue that kind of token on public blockchains and allow to people to send it between each other easily right so we're wrapping up so that that's going to be a hanging question for after yeah. the after the panel but douglas can you uh, take us away with the I last word i'll give you a quick one I said in plain sight on the Edgar database, you look up INX Limited and you'll find out that actually regulators have given a point of view. The yeah. point of view is they haven't ruled on whether there's a qualified custodian yet because they don't have to, because what they have ruled on is the only registered public security that's on the blockchain, which is INX Limited. And they said that it's because of the ERC 1404 that we're on that essentially made it so safe that you don't need a qualified custodian to hold it. And we've got lots of institutions holding us. We've got 8,000, I think, 50 holders of our security token. And it's because we've made it, we've made the chicken so safe that it doesn't really matter what the, the, the chicken coop and how safe the chicken coop is. All right. I think it's changing. It's, and it's changing where it's going to be on a self-custodian basis. Smart contracts will make it such that your security token will be so safe it's unstealable. All right. Glenn Barber, Douglas Borthwick, Yael Tamar, Oleg Kurchenko, and Brian Korn, thank you so much. Thank you very Thanks, much. Jeff.
Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye.